You're listening to God at a Distance, a teaching series from Formation Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. In this series, we discuss how to move through the fear that keeps us distanced from God in order to pursue deeper friendship with Him. For more information about Formation Church, visit our website at formationslc.com. talk about what may just be uh, the great hindrance to discipleship in general and to our intimacy with Jesus in particular. And so I want to talk about the fear of discomfort. Now, if you really stop and think about it, the majority of modern culture is driven by an attempt to create the most comfortable human experience possible. And as a result, discomfort is a problem to be solved rather than a just simple part of life that we are to embrace. And so I want to give you a couple of examples of just how deep this commitment to comfort goes for us, because it really does touch everything in our lives. So for instance, think about the fact that virtually every environment that we inhabit is temperature controlled. It's like this luxury that we kind of take for granted, but it's it's an incredible way that we experience comfort. All of the environments in which we, that we inhabit are temperature controlled. So there was obviously a day when that wasn't true, and there are certainly places in which that's still not true, but most everything is temperature controlled. And our vehicles are the most amazing example of this. Not only do they have heat and air, but somewhere along the way, someone decided that wasn't enough. Someone decided, like, I need the actual seat that I sit on to both heat me and cool me. We are a culture of comfort. Here's another example. We have the immediate answer to almost everything at our fingertips. If you have a question about anything, you don't have to wonder anymore. You don't have to own encyclopedias anymore. Remember when we owned those? They were like this long. They were like a million dollars, and no one ever read them. You don't even have to go to the library anymore. All you have to do is pull out your phone, Google it, and within seconds you have the answer. And we know how committed to comfort we are because if you've ever had your Google search hang up for more than like two seconds, you'd think the world's going to end because of the discomfort of waiting. We are a culture of comfort. Here's a third example. It has never been more comfortable or convenient to gain access to food. Someone decided that having to drive to a restaurant go through the discomfort of walking in, sitting down, and ordering was too inconvenient. So somewhere along the way, someone was like, you know what we should do? We'll just cut a hole in the side of the building. They just drive through, and we just shovel it straight into their gullet. It'll be so much more convenient for them. And then, a couple of years ago, someone was like, God, it's just so much work to drive to the drive-through. Like, what are we, peasants? Like, why do we still have to do this? So that's how we got DoorDash. Now, someone can just bring it straight to your door. We are a culture of comfort. Now, here's the thing. Comfort is in no way, I want to be super clear about this, comfort is in no way morally wrong. It's not at all. It's not wrong that we are progressing as a culture and that life is becoming more comfortable in certain ways. It is in no way morally wrong, in the same way that discomfort is not morally superior There have been misguided expressions of our faith that hold to aestheticism, which is essentially self-induced suffering as a way to righteousness. 
And I want to be clear, that is not true. Scripture does not teach that. But what is true is that our deep commitment to comfort comes with consequences. Namely this, the more accustomed that we become with comfort, the more we tend to demonize discomfort. So the more accustomed that we become with comfort, the, way, the more that that becomes our norm, the more we have a tendency as a result of that to demonize discomfort. If comfort is God, then discomfort is the devil. If comfort in life is the goal, then discomfort is a problem to be solved. And so this problem is especially problematic when it comes to our faith. And so here is the sobering reality. I want to invite you to give an honest consideration to this afternoon. There is no discipleship without discomfort. Full stop. There is no discipleship without discomfort. You cannot find one example in Scripture, nor one example in 2,000 years of church history, in which a person devoted their lives to the way of Jesus and lived a comfortable life. It does not exist. The comfortable life is incongruent with the way of Christ. And never is that more clear than in both the life and the words of Jesus, specifically the ones that I want us to look at this afternoon. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it to Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at Mark 8, 34 to 38. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, it's okay. All the text will be on the screen. But before we jump into these verses in Mark 8, let me just set set the stage for them real quickly. Uh, Mark's gospel, if you don't know, is the shortest of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It is also the fastest paced. paced. It tells the story at a very rapid rate. It's succinct. And chapter 8 in Mark is a transition of sorts. From Mark chapter 8 on, Jesus is making his way slowly toward Jerusalem, where he would be betrayed, he would be tried, he would be tortured, and he would be crucified. And because Jesus knew that that fate awaited him, it was critical that these first disciples that were following him really began to understand who he was and why he was about to endure everything that he was about to endure for the good of the whole world. And so Jesus, in this paragraph that that we're going to look at, or the paragraph just prior to ours, Jesus has begun to tell them the type of suffering that awaited him in Jerusalem. So there's three different times in all of the Gospels where Jesus says, here's what awaits me as we make our way toward Jerusalem. And Peter, God bless him, well-intentioned, pulls Jesus aside this first time, and the text says in verse 32 that that Peter began to rebuke Jesus for saying these things, which is always funny. Why he thought that he was in a position to rebuke Jesus for anything that Jesus had to say is beyond me. But Jesus turns right around to him and says, get behind me, Satan, which could not have felt very good. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Now, we're not going to dive into all the details of this, but it does teach us something that we need to see. Humans are chiefly concerned with comfort, and God is chiefly concerned with what's necessary to bring his kingdom in this world. And so for Jesus and every one of his followers, this means embracing discomfort as an ever-present part of our discipleship. And so as we pick up in verse 34, Jesus is going to define discipleship in an attempt to make this sobering truth as clear for us as possible. 
So look with me at verse 34. It says, Calling the crowds along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So, let me ask you a question. If you and, I, you and I were to sit down and to have coffee, and I were to ask you, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does that require? I wonder how you would explain that. My guess is that most of us would talk about like going to church, reading the Bible and praying, trying our best to be a good person, helping people, having some kind of personal relationship with Jesus. And the truth is, none of those things are bad. In fact, I would argue that those are all good and biblical things. But what we have to see here in verse 34 is that Jesus, answer, Jesus answers this very question. He tells us what it means, what it requires, what it looks like to actually be his disciples. And so he defines and then describes what that means. Now, I want you, as best you can, to try to imagine that you were one of those first disciples. And you've been following him around for quite a while now. You've seen him do amazing things. You've heard him preach incredible sermons about this new kingdom. Everything that you have been through with him has built to this climactic moment that we read about in chapter 8. And now Jesus turns to the crowd. He looks you in the eye and he says, if you truly want to know what it means to be my disciple, to be part of this new kingdom, to experience the life that you were created for, it's going to mean the death of your comfort over and over and over again. Now, we don't know this specifically from the text, but you have to think that it probably got real quiet real fast. You have to think that there's a solid possibility that the crowd started to trickle off and to head home. You have to think that people were either saying to one another or thinking in their heads, yeah, we, we like the stuff you do for us. We like the way that you heal. We loved when you fed us. That was awesome. We love the way that you teach, but at no point did any of us sign up to pick up a cross. Because remember, this language of the cross would have hit them so much differently than it does us. The image of a cross has, has kind of lost its sobering power in our culture. We have made the cross a thing of beauty. But to the people who were listening to Jesus, the cross was an instrument of brutality by the first century, the Romans had perfected the act of crucifixion. It was a death sentence that was reserved for only the most wicked and only the most profane criminals. You know, Roman citizens weren't even allowed to be crucified. So they would crucify others, but their own people, they refused to crucify. It was too brutal. It was the most brutalizing, dehumanizing way for someone to die. Furthermore, for Jesus' Jewish listeners, the cross was a reminder of Roman oppression that there was a people group living in their country, in their city, in their area that was not supposed to be there. And so put yourself in this story. Not only is Jesus saying that he is not here to destroy your Roman oppressors the way that you have been hearing since you were a kid, the Messiah is going to come, he's going to chase Rome out, and this is going to be our land. They've been hearing that narrative for decades. 
And now this man they believe to be the Messiah is here, and he flips the script on them in such a significant way. This would have been so disoriented. Jesus says, if you, if you want to truly follow me, you have to pick up your cross and follow me. And so Jesus takes this symbol of shame and death, and he holds it up for them, and he says, this is what it means to be my disciple. And everybody listening is going like, what just happened? What does this mean? And thankfully, Jesus doesn't just leave it at that, but he goes on to use description in his definition of discipleship. And here's why this is so important for us to pay attention to. Following Jesus is still so often not what we think it is. Like the listening crowd, many of us confess to follow a Jesus that if we're honest, we really expect him to give us the things we want. We expect him to keep us healthy and comfortable. And when those things don't happen, we shake our fist at God going, look how you, you have failed me. We use him as a means to an end. And like the listening crowd, we want to fit Jesus into our already existing lives. And so maybe we will give him 90 minutes on a Sunday, as long as we don't have other things going on, as long as we don't feel too overwhelmed by life. We may even put some money in the offering, but in return, it's Jesus' job to keep us comfortable. And the problem with that is that Jesus absolutely annihilates that definition of discipleship in these few verses. And he describes something for us that is so different. Let's keep going. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? And so notice here how Jesus appeals to what I believe is our most basic instinct as human beings. It's our longing for self-preservation. And that's exactly what Jesus speaks into. So he says to them, I, I know how scary it is to call you to a cross-carrying life. That means allowing your comfortable self to die. But you have to understand, this is the way to get and to experience true life. You can live in immediate comfort and do life your own way, but it will actually cost you your life. And I'm quite certain that this all sounded just as confounding to them as it does to us. How in the world does losing your life preserve your life? It is a prime example of the counterintuitive way that Jesus so often taught, meaning that the intended result is actually achieved doing the opposite of what you think. Now, I'll give you an example of something that's counterintuitive. Uh, sometimes things have to get worse in order to get better. We've all heard that before, right? You just think about that sentence, you're like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Things have to get worse before they can get better. That seems counterintuitive. If something is getting better, it should be getting better, not worse. But the truth is, sometimes things do get worse as they are getting better. I've experienced this on my own healing journey, and I've seen this to be true for so many other people. Oftentimes, when someone takes a first step into something like counseling or therapy or spiritual direction, for the very first time, what tends to happen is, for a few months, 
your life really starts to unravel in a pretty special kind of way. And the reason for that is, it's often the very first time your wounds have been welcomed to the surface. Like so many of us carry all of the, the, this trauma, which I know is an overused word, these pain, this pain and these wounds and all of this unprocessed experience that we've had inside of us. And so then you sit down with someone who is a welcoming presence and they go, all right, let's, let's welcome all of that out. And you just feel like you're coming unglued there for a minute. But the reality is you're healing even though you may feel worse before you feel better. It's counterintuitive just like this description from Jesus. According to Jesus, the way to true life is to embrace the death of our comfortable self. Look at verse 38. Jesus says again, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, when, when you read that word ashamed, don't think embarrassed. Jesus is not saying that if we are embarrassed by any aspect of him or of his message, then he will be embarrassed by us. The Greek word actually carries the idea of an all-out rejection of his way of discipleship. And so what Jesus is saying is, is if, if you reject my definition, if you reject my description of what it means to be a disciple, then you're not my disciple. He says, if you reject my way of relationship, then I have no choice but to reject relationship with you. And so remember, there's two groups of people that are listening to Jesus say these very uncomfortable, difficult words. There are his disciples, and there is the crowd. And those are two distinct groups that over and over again, in the language of the New Testament, is meant to show these are two separate groups. There are Jesus' disciples, the people who follow him, and then there was always this crowd around that really was there as, they were there as consumers. They liked the show of being around Jesus. But it does teach us a valuable lesson that proximity does not mean we're a disciple. And you can't help but back up from a text like this and wonder how many people that profess to be Christians are actually disciples. And so when we take all of this as a whole... Here's the big idea this afternoon. The way of discipleship demands death to the comfortable self. The way of discipleship demands death to the comfortable self. And again, this is not a call to some sort of aesthetic life where you self-induce suffering in order to become more holy. Life has a way of providing discomfort. We don't need to create it. You don't need to, like, whip yourself. Life's going to do a real good job of whipping you silly by the time you die. We don't need to add to it intentionally. But we also need to be very careful not to reject discomfort and to live in comfort or we will lose true life. And we won't be disciples of Jesus. So intimacy with God cannot be our experience if we are unwilling to embrace this uncomfortable invitation. We can embrace comfort and miss out on the depth of relationship that is offered to us with God, or we can embrace the discomfort of dying to ourselves and become the Jesus people that he created us to be. And to be fair, I was thinking about this this week, 
I think we're at a further disadvantage living in this post-COVID era. And the reason for that is we had two full years that were marked by such deep discomfort that the way now that we think, the way that we feel, the way that we behave has fundamentally changed. And I really don't believe that we've even scratched the surface of understanding the impact of that event on our culture and on our lives. For two years, we lost so much control that we are now reticent to retire control in even small ways. And further complicating the issue, we believe that we have earned the right to essentially do whatever we want in the name of self-care after two years of traumatic isolation and conflict. And so the question is, how do we die to the comfortable self in a post-COVID culture? Let me give you just two ideas. There's... I mean, we could spend days compiling a list of ways in which we can die to self. But I want to specifically focus this on where we are as a result of where we have been. And so a couple of ways <clears throat> that we can die to the comfortable self in a post-COVID culture. Two ideas. Here's number one. Deconstruct for deeper discipleship. Deconstruct for deeper discipleship. There has been so much talk of deconstruction over the last few years. And out of what I believe is fear, many Christian leaders have sought to demonize it, but at its core, deconstruction is a natural part of the faith journey. Deconstruction is rethinking what you once believed. And at times, this has resulted in people abandoning their faith altogether. We saw that even happen with people that were once a part of our own church. And I think because of that, so many Christian leaders are, are afraid of this subject. But when people deconstruct out of their faith, I would argue it often has more to do with the manner in which they went about the journey rather than the journey itself. Deconstruction has always been a part of the faith journey. It's not new. It's not like, oh, COVID happened and now everybody's like, no, this has always been a part of faith. Think about this. Throughout history, the process of deconstruction has been essential to the development and the health of the church. When Jesus came onto the scene saying things like, you have heard it said, but now I say to you, he was helping those people deconstruct their faith so that they could reconstruct it for greater flourishing. The Protestant Reformation that took place in the 1500s, guess what that was? a massive act of deconstruction. So deconstruction, when it is done in a healthy manner, helps one leave behind what is unhealthy and untrue in order to move forward with greater health and more in line with what is true. And again, it is an essential part of the faith journey. If you're experiencing some part of that right now, it does not mean that something's wrong. The spirit is behind that, whispering, there's more. There's more, there's more. The difference is, right now, we seem to be in this massive deconstructive transition as a culture. And I think in the end, we're going to look back on it going, that was a really good thing, but it was really, really hard. There seems to be a good but uncomfortable transition taking place where we are becoming more aware of what is broken in our tradition. And some people who are becoming more aware are owning that and are working to change it. Now, unfortunately, there's a whole group of people that are doubling down and want to maintain the old wineskin. 
But something is happening in our culture that is good. And so again, our response need not be to demonize deconstruction. We need to deconstruct in a way that leads to deeper discipleship. And so if you are here and your experience of any, any aspect of this is, is resonating with you, like 2020 was a huge time of me just going like, what is happening in evangelicalism right now? Have we always been this big of a dumpster fire and we just needed more time at home to be able to see it? I think the answer is yes. But, but if you're experiencing any of that, no, pff, me too. And so here's what I believe are the two most important factors that will help us make it through this in a healthy way. The first is get a guide. Get a guide. If you are in a place where you are wrestling with and questioning even huge aspects of your faith, it is most prudent to seek someone who has gone before you in order to gain the wisdom of their experience. So spiritual directors are a great help in this. Pastors who aren't afraid to wade into these waters can be a great help in this. So if you, don't, if you feel like you're walking that road alone, I mean, I've had countless conversations with people in our church, friends outside of our church that are going through that. I've been going through that in my own life. I would be happy to walk with you on that journey, but don't do it alone. You need to get a guide. The second one is to process in community process in community. The common denominator in those who walk away from faith in general tends to be isolation. They're doing it alone. And this is why people that were in this process during COVID COVID struggled so intensely. So many were doing it alone, just them and an internet connection. And the internet's a real bad guide to deconstruction. In truth, we need to go on this journey in community. And so as we think about ways to die to the comfortable self in a post-COVID culture, the first is let's go ahead and embrace what's happening and deconstruct for deeper discipleship. It doesn't mean that you'll spin out of your faith, okay? So that's number one. Here's number two. Participate sacrificially in community. Participate sacrificially in community. There are two things I've noticed as we have kind of come out of the weeds of COVID, and they are that people are struggling emotionally uh, more than ever before, and and some people are struggling to a degree that they, they don't even truly see themselves and understand. And then secondly, our capacity has been very diminished. And so as a result, the majority of churches are seeing people only participate within their comfort zone, which doesn't really work because so much of community life is inherently uncomfortable. Building a safe place for hurting people to find healing relationship with Jesus is uncomfortable. So if we're unwilling to participate outside our comfort and to truly sacrifice, it's not going to happen. It's just not. And so here's the most concrete example of this that I can give. And I want you to know on the front end that this might step on your toes a little bit. I grew up with uh, this pastor that uh, was like, I mean, I was young, so he seemed like he was nine feet tall. I'm pretty sure he was like 6'5", so he was a house of a man and weighed over 300 pounds. He was just an enormous presence. And he just used to always tell us, like, I'm about to step on your toes, so pull him in a little bit. So pull him in a little bit, okay? Um, At Formation, we invite people to participate in five ways, essentially. 
We ask people to attend. So like Sunday, if we have a prayer meeting, like we don't do that much. But if we have a church-wide event, we, we ask people to attend those things. Pretty normal ask. Uh, secondly, we ask people to serve. Uh, thirdly, we ask people to give if this is going to be your church home. Fourthly, we ask people to be in a formation group. And then fifthly, and we can't measure this one because this one is completely between you and Jesus, we ask people to sit with God. Have a real relationship with Jesus. Don't allow the Sunday service to mediate your relationship with God. You get to know him. You talk to him. You listen to him. And so this week, I was thinking about those five things, and I started to worry. I was thinking about this point, and I started to look through the list of people who call formation home, which... I know it's hard to believe based on this, but it's about 120 people that if you were to ask them, like, what's your church? They would say, Formation's my church. Now, here's what I found. Roughly 10 people in our entire community are participating in all five ways. That's it. The majority of us seem to treat these five options like they're a buffet where we sort of pick and choose where we're going to participate. And that participation almost always aligns with our comfort. Now, here's the problem with that. Everything that we invite you to as a community is for your spiritual health and for our spiritual health as a community. And so you aren't as healthy as you could be, and we are not as healthy as we could be when we don't all commit to full participation, even when it involves sacrifice on our part. And so I don't say any of that to shame any of you who are not fully participating in those five things. I don't say it to shame you. I say it out of concern, and I say it because I love you, and I say it because I care about us as a community. And if we are going to both survive and thrive as a community, that it means we are going to have to learn to participate even outside of our comfort in a way that is sacrificial to us. Because I do, I do want you to just think about, and this, this is not, again, not meant to shame, but this, this is so that we can like experience the weight of conviction as a community, okay? Just, just, just think about being a listener in the first century to what Jesus says. Because they knew that when Jesus said, pick up your cross daily and follow me, there was an aspect of what he was saying that was like figurative, and there was an aspect of it that was like, no, make no mistake, this might actually become your reality. You might actually have to give your life in a literal sense to follow me. Jesus was not the only one that was actually crucified. History tells us that all but two of the original 12 disciples were martyred for their faith. One of them was, that was not was Judas. He took his own life. And then John was exiled off to an island, which barely sounds better. So this was a very real reality. That, that's what they were, they were weighing. Am I willing to literally die to have a relationship with Jesus? And what we are being asked to do all I will say is what we are being asked to do is considerably less than that. Agreed? It's considerably less. And I know, 
I know with this diminished capacity that so many of us are experiencing right now, like the smallest things can be very, very hard, which is why I want you to hear and hear and hear. None of this comes from a place of desiring to shame or to make anyone feel bad, but we need to tell the truth and we need to be open and honest about where we're at and what's going on so that we can relate with God from that place of truth and honesty. We are being invited to more. And so as we close, here's the question I want to invite you to contemplate this week. Where is Holy Spirit inviting me to put my comfortable self to death in order to go deeper with him and others? Even just right now in this moment, think about that question. Where is Holy Spirit inviting me to put my comfortable self to death in order to go deeper with him and others? So maybe there's some areas of your faith that you need to deconstruct. Maybe you need to adjust the manner in which you're going about that journey. Seek a guide or begin processing in community. Maybe you sense him inviting you to participate more sacrificially in our community. Maybe it's time to make Sunday worship the priority of your day. Maybe it's time to serve or give or finally take the plunge and join a formation group. Maybe it's time to really begin learning and experimenting and practicing with how to truly relate with God in your own life. Maybe it's something altogether different. The question is, where is the Holy Spirit inviting you to put your comfortable self to death again in order to go deeper with him and deeper with others. See, the reality is this is not work that we are capable of doing alone. We need God's spirit not only to give us awareness of where we need to stretch, of where we need to sacrifice, but we need his empowering courage and strength to actually do so. And so let's pray and let's ask him to give us that. Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, I thank you that you very much know how difficult of an invitation this is. Lord, when you said these infamous words, whoever would follow me, should deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. When you said those words, you knew that that cross was right in front of you. That it wasn't a metaphor. It was your fate to give your life on a cross for us. So I thank you, Lord, that you don't say these challenging words to us from a place of, of distance and not really understanding what it is that you're asking and what it is that you're inviting, you know. But on the other side of your death was resurrection. And on the other side of our death is resurrection. On the other side of every little death to self is a mini resurrection. And Lord, so many of us are in need of resurrection to new life, to truer life, to deeper life, to healthier life. And we can't do it on our own. 
Some of us are stuck in patterns and cycles that we cannot seem to break out of, but you can break us out. You can lead us to a place of greater freedom, and the path is the death of our comfortable self. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us insight and awareness right now. Where are you inviting us to take a concrete step with you in the work of putting to death our comfortable self? Lord, I pray against resistance that comes up inside of us. I pray against this, the call of comfort that is always trying to woo us back. Lord, help us to hear your voice, to see your hands extended, inviting us to a deeper place with you and a deeper place with one another and give us the courage and the strength to say yes. We love you and we want to say yes. Would you help us? In Jesus' name, amen.